0: they're breaking their test users into their body parts and they're scanning them so that they can build an algorithm like that is that is not any different from big tech
1: i'm charlie johnson and this is untangled a podcast about technology people and power I'm going to keep this ask short and sweet. If you care about my happiness at all, please subscribe to the newsletter version of Untangled on Substack and the podcast on Apple or Spotify. This month, I decided to write about a phrase that has always driven me a bit bonkers, tech for good. In the essay, I drew upon Eileen Guaz's investigation into WorldCoin, a company that ostensibly wants to distribute cryptocurrency to everyone in the world. But Eileen's reporting reveals the massive gap between what WorldCoin says it's doing and why it's doing it. And, you know, reality. It's phrases like tech for good that help to sustain that gap and it's excellent reporting, as well as really, really smart newsletters that help to close it. I was thrilled to host Eileen on the pod to talk about her investigation. In our conversation, we discussed how WorldCoin is modeling the move fast and break things ethos of Silicon Valley, and how they're breaking things. We talked about what problem WorldCoin is actually trying to solve. To preview, it has a lot more to do with crypto than it does universal basic income or poverty. And we talked about how WorldCoin's approach resembles crypto-colonialism. Along the way, we stumbled upon a broader lesson that we're seemingly forced to relearn over and over again as a society. Listen to the end to hear what it is. As always, if you like the podcast, please review it, rate it, and share it. And now, on to the show. Eileen Guo, welcome to Untangled.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Take me back to the beginning of your investigation piece on WorldCoin. How does that story start?
0: Yeah. So it started in the fall of 2021. Um, The company had not been entirely in stealth at this point. There was a really good Bloomberg piece that talked about them over the summer, but this was the first time that WorldCoin could kind of um, describe itself and its mission in its own words. And those uh, words did not go over quite as well as it perhaps hoped. Um, So the company's website, it described this new thing that they were doing as this Ethereum based new collectively owned global currency that will be distributed fairly to as many people as possible. And the idea was that everyone in the world would get a free share um, just, you know, with the tiny caveat that if they agreed uh, first to an iris scan with a specially designed device that like more than anything, looks to me like a decapitated robot head. And specifically, <laughs> C-3PO in Star Wars. Like, if it was chrome <laughs> and it was round instead of, you know, his head is a little oblong, that's that's what they were doing. And, and oh, and um, the other, like, key point, that they were already piloting this program in places like Indonesia, Kenya, and Sudan. And so when the news came out, um, Twitterverse uh, erupted with kind of a, basically a pretty universal assessment that this was, comic book levels of villainy you know is bad and dystopian and for for a lot of different reasons the collection of biometrics the lack of um really any description of what kind of privacy protocols or security protocols were in place the fact that this was being created at all and and to me the thing that really stuck out was they're doing this in Indonesia Kenya and Sudan three developing countries one of which is is in the middle of, of conflict, a, a civil war. And so that just stood out to me as something really worth digging into. And, and that comes partly from my background. You know, I... Have a pretty non-traditional path into journalism. I, I was an anthropology and international relations major and I think that a lot of how I treat journalism comes from that anthropology background of like deep ethnography and really understanding the lived experiences around anything and I had also spent time in Afghanistan kind of at the height of the optimism around what technology could do um, in terms of democratization and I left Afghanistan feeling really disillusioned. So I, I think I brought that kind of extra levels of skepticism to to Worldcoin.
1: So your your bullshit radar for sort of tech solutionism is is on point.
0: It, it's it's very high.
1: <laughs> All right. Okay. So Worldcoin, to sort of summarize, is a company that wants to distribute cryptocurrency to everyone in the world in a way that, according to them, is privacy protecting and fair. So they've created this weird orb, which is a device loaded with cameras and sensors that is used to scan our eyes, faces, and bodies. The orb then turns this data into a unique identifier. They've already collected the biometric information of roughly 500,000 people, mostly in the global majority. Your reporting took us to Indonesia, Kenya, and Sudan. So talk about how this process is playing out in practice.
0: The way that it played out, you know, and this is based on um, interviews with 35 people in six countries. So we spoke to people in Indonesia, Kenya, Sudan, Ghana, Chile, and Norway, who had either like worked on or behalf of WorldCoin, they had been scanned themselves, or they were, you know, recruited and declined to participate for whatever uh, reason. And, And we also like, we observed scans in Indonesia as well. And I think the main thing that we found is that WorldCoin representatives were, Often going into these very physical spaces far from the world of Web3. They were rural villages, they were schools, universities, sometimes urban marketplaces, primarily in the developing world. And WorldCoin representatives or orb operators, you know, people that were essentially being paid at the time per scans, um, so they were really incentivized to scan as many people as possible, they were going in and essentially approaching people with offers of money um, and some that that was there was always this offer of uh, of world coin the token itself which hadn't launched yet and so it had no real monetary value it was essentially an IOU of eventually you'll get this money um, but they were also being offered fiat currency you know in Kenya they were being offered um, M-Pesa the digital currency in, in Indonesia officials were being paid to essentially allow and promote um, the recruitment of of their villagers and and their constituents. So there was this monetary incentive um, that is really problematic when you also think about consent and how do you consent when you're being you know given money? Um, and also there was other consent issues in that people weren't really ever explained what the purpose of this collection was truly for. They off- they weren't told the the amount of data that was being collected people just thought it was an iris scan wherein in reality it was the iris the face it was a video of your face um, it was according to the privacy policy that a lot of people did not see or sign uh, and mm. and in their languages um, you know it was all of this extra information and not only were people being you know, recruited to this for monetary reasons without clear understandings of what it was that they were doing. But a lot of them didn't know what crypto or Web3 were. Uh, in some cases, they didn't even have email addresses. And, and that just really brings up a lot of questions about what was WorldCoin really trying to do? And that kind of became the central question that we were trying to answer in, in our investigation.
1: I want to get to that uh, question in a minute, but first, in reading your article, it seemed to me that WorldCoin had, slash maybe has, a kind of move fast and break things approach. They're trying to encourage and incent as many signups as possible. They did not obtain informed consent. They're likely violating both the GDPR and local laws. I mean, what did you make of their approach?
0: you know i'm glad that you brought up the 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 move fast and break things approach uh which is of course like that's how tech startups operate right and and i think what i made of their approach with that in mind is that this was taking the worst of how technology companies operate really to an extreme and to an excess and i wanted to bring that back to you know broader tech and how they operate, because this isn't just WorldCoin that's doing this. It really is how tech operates. It's just when you're talking about biometrics in developing world context, like the stakes are just so much higher.
1: In the documents WorldCoin sent you, they referred to themselves as a civil society project. And the program was also marketed as a social assistance giveaway. So in a context when the stakes are so high, How did those signing up for WorldCoin understand its mission?
0: The short answer is that they really didn't understand WorldCoin's mission. You know, some of the interviewees that we spoke to did know about cryptocurrency and were actually excited to be, you know, getting in early and getting something potentially free. But that's not WorldCoin's real mission. Their real mission is to build a, a new identity authentication software or platform uh, rather than software for Web3, and no one understood that. No one understood that this was a pilot project, that that they were essentially giving up their privacy so that eventually when WorldCoin supposedly launches with these privacy-protecting protocols, that other people would be safer and, and more secure. You know, they didn't understand any of that.
1: Right, so their data was just sort of used to train the algorithmic systems that would ultimately be deployed
0: that's right and to be clear and I suppose fair to Worldcoin, they would get some of the coin that would eventually launch um, we actually s- spoke to a couple of people that talked about how in the initial days they were able to immediately trade their Worldcoin tokens on just normal platforms and so some of them immediately moved that into uh, into ethereum and bitcoin and then just had free bitcoin which was a cool perk for them but that was not really how it was supposed to work and that was not the case for most people um, so Indonesia So for example, uh, we spoke to some village officials where these recruitment drives were were happening and they spoke about how WorldCoin representatives did market themselves as this social good. It was kind of this corporate social responsibility project at best in the ways that it was potentially more deceptive, either in intent or in understanding. There was this big confusion between, you know, pandemic era giveaways that Indonesian government officials were were giving out and what this was and and so several officials that we spoke to were concerned that villagers would think that this is another giveaway that the government is doing and and we're concerned that this is why people would be signing up i mean
1: this gets to the heart of what Worldcoin was actually doing like what problem were they trying to solve and you alluded to this a minute ago but there's a very generous read which says WorldCoin genuinely cares about universal basic income. They think fraud is a big, big problem, and they came up with this weird, albeit imperfect technology in an attempt to address fraud while preserving privacy. On the other end, there's a read which says they're trying to solve problems within crypto itself, namely user enrollment and authentication, civil attacks, these kinds of things. And to do that, they need to sign up a lot of people and extract their data cheaply. And UBI is sort of a useful cover or way of selling what they're doing. I'm curious, in the course of your reporting, how did you come to understand the problem WorldCoin is actually trying to solve?
0: That became really one of the centerpieces of, of our investigation in a way that I didn't You know, anticipate. Um, I thought when I started reporting this that this would be a look into what it was like to be one of the early test users of WorldCoin in the developing world. And it was that, you know, and it did reveal deceptive marketing practices, potentially bribery, you know, all of the things that we've already talked about. But the story also became an investigation of what was it that WorldCoin was actually trying to do. And, And I think. One of the things that's really important to know is that WorldCoin actually undercut its own argument that this was about universal basic income. In my back and forth with uh their CEO, Alex Blania, with their PR representatives, they claimed that they've never described the company as providing UBI in their own marketing, which is such a sleight of hand, right? Because in one of the initial interviews, Sam Altman, one of the co-founders and Alex Blania had explicitly talked about UBI and, and that this was one of the reasons that they were starting this. And 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 so, you know, after Blania told me this, I went back to their website, and and it does say collectively owned global currency, not UBI, so maybe they're right in that. Uh Really, what I came away with was that this isn't about UBI, uh, that it was always about solving this bigger problem within Web3 uh, of authentication. That's really the conclusion.
1: And so to do that, they create this orb. What is it what data was it collecting? What happens to the data once it is ultimately collected?
0: The orb gets the most attention because it's this, like I said earlier, it's 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 this decapitated robot head um, <laughs> that is very futuristic and is meant to capture it, your attention. But the orb is actually only a small part of what they're really building. Um, so what they're really building is the, the really advanced cutting edge cryptography that if it works as advertised, which of course is the big question that is unanswered, uh, would be able to authenticate that a human is that human and, and you know that's it. Um, but to go back to your question, the Orb is basically just a redesigned biometric scanning device. Um, as you've talked about, it's it uh, it scans users' body, face, eyes, their irises, which is again that's they really focus on the irises, but that's only a part of it. There's contactless Doppler radar detection of your heartbeat, of your breathing, your other vital signs. It's really very invasive. Data. That's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. You know, one of the, um, the privacy experts that we spoke to and, and GDPR experts suggested that this goes beyond GDPR, this, that the, some of this could be protected health data. So it's, it's really a lot. And
1: what happens to that data? How is it stored? How is it protected? What did you learn about? You know, I'm sure they, they care so deeply about privacy. So how did they uh, store this data?
0: It's kind of unclear how they store the data because there is a big difference between what they say will eventually happen and what may be happening currently. So the way that they talk about it is that the biometric information is supposedly secure um, because it is, it's stored on the device. It's ultimately used to generate a, uh, what they call an Irish hash, which is the code. Um, the code is never shared. That's what's used to check whether the Iris hash is unique and IDEP exists in WorldCoin's database. To do this, it uses this so-called privacy-protecting protocol, the zero-knowledge proof, but there's just so many holes in all of this. For one thing, as as we've just been talking about, a lot of what they describe is what's supposed to happen once they fully launch, so it's unclear what's actually happening with the data that is currently being collected during the pilot, but there's two things that i'll that I'll say here that to me really hint at the likelihood that this data is not being well secured um, and protected. and one is that there was a lot of extra data that was being collected on the ground, um, and one of which was you know in Kenya. We spoke to students that when they were recruited, the local orb operators took photos of their ID, uh, of their national ID, which WorldCoin says it doesn't need, it never collects. So there's a lot of questions here of where is the privacy of, of these images or or data? Where is it being stored, even if WorldCoin has secure databases on, on you know, their back end. There's so many levels where your private information can leak, including with these orb operators, um, and they're not, you know, addressing that, being honest, really, about about this reality. They're essentially denying that it happens, or if it happens, it's a single incident and not widespread and, and systematic, you know, the bad Apple argument. The other thing is that in their data consent and privacy policies, which again, they aren't actually, for the most part, allowing people uh, to read or, or giving it to them in local languages or you know any of that, they talk about how you can also ask for your data to be deleted as per GDPR regulations. But how do you ask for your data to be deleted if they're not actually collecting information that con- collects your identity to your biometrics? You can't mm. have it both ways.
1: You also spoke to a number of experts about the technology, sort of its security, what it can and can't do. What did you learn through these conversations and what's still a question mark for you? What's unclear?
0: Almost everything is a question mark.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, almost as soon as they launched, they were really getting criticized by uh, about their lack of their lack of real transparency. You know, They didn't release a white paper, which sometimes these projects do. They didn't, at the time, open source their code. They basically came back and just said, oh, we're being misunderstood. We're actually way more privacy protecting than anyone's giving us credit for. Just trust us, just give us some time, right? That's a lot to ask when you're also asking for biometric data, which is a big deal. So with that, the experts that I spoke to really weren't going off of much. some of the cryptography experts did say that based on the very little information that they had, that if this technology works, which again is a big if, that it actually is really cutting edge and it could be very exciting, but again, doesn't work that's an open question. But also the technical protections that you build into a system like this are only a small part of anything's overall security. You know, a lot of it is around um, how are you collecting the data? What are you explaining to the users? It is about user consent. And I think the other thing is that a lot of what WorldCoin is trying to do does follow previous models of how technology operates. And so there are a lot of lessons that we can learn from those models. You know, one of the um, foremost identity experts that we spoke to, Kalia Young, she didn't want to comment on the record on WorldCoin specifically. But she pointed out to me that tech companies have been claiming that they will be onboarding absolutely everyone in the world, which is part of WorldCoin's, you know, claim and also value proposition. Tech companies have been saying this from the beginning, and nobody has been able to do it. So... Is this really any different? Digital anthropologists like Payal Aurora spoke about how this race to get data that uh, Worldcoin is also, you know, I- engaged in is really that central to how technology companies and especially AI companies work these days. Um, it's also, you know, the model uh, of using these kind of like federated uh, gig workers essentially to go out and get the data and and to um serve as the representatives of this company that also exists. that's how Adar the the biometrics identity system in India works. that's how previous attempts of piloting technology have worked. And, and then of course there's you know I, Edward Snowden's comment when this all came out, which I think is still very uh accurate after having done all of this reporting he had this great tweet where he just said quote don't catalog eyeballs don't use biometrics for anti-fraud in fact don't use biometrics for anything the human body is not a ticket punch and and that just still feels so on point
1: i want to focus in on your interview with WorldCoin CEO, Alex Blania for a minute. So at one point Blania says, quote, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but you looked at the testing operation of a series A company. It's a few people trying to make something work. It's not like an Uber with like hundreds of people that did this many, many times, close quote. Take me back to that moment in the interview what was your reaction to that comment?
0: This part of the interview was actually when he was getting defensive. You know, there's there's my personal reactions, which was it was, it was very, it felt dismissive of me. It felt very gaslighty. But I think more importantly, it was just representative of this big disconnect that came out a lot in our interview, um, in, in some of the quotes that he gave me afterwards as well about just who who is WorldCoin for? And who are they actually thinking about when they're talking about protecting privacy? And it was just so clear that they weren't thinking about these nearly 500,000 people that they had already been testing on as people whose privacy mattered. And, And so that moment, aside from like my personal visceral reactions of how he was treating me, which whatever, that moment, I think, was kind of the beginning of my starting to understand what this was really about.
1: Well, so talk a bit more about plania and I'm also curious about WorldCoin founder Sam Altman. I mean, how do you think their backgrounds, their worldview shape how they approach WorldCoin? What can they see and what can't they see?
0: Yeah, I think that for um, Blania in particular, who has a you know engineering background and is very much the tech person, he saw it as an engineering problem, and that's really reflected in in their initial marketing as well. Um, and and Blania spoke to this as well. But he he said to me in our interview um, that he was shocked by the pushback. I think that's kind of bullshit, to be honest. Um, how can you not think about these unintended consequences? But I think that speaks to this kind of bubble that they're in in Silicon Valley. When you're living in that bubble, you're, you're trying to solve a problem for a tiny group of people and everyone else is um, secondary to that. They're either test subjects as with, you know, these pilot participants um, that should just be grateful that they're getting some free crypto as test subjects, or there are people on the outside that just don't understand the mission.
1: It's mind blowing to me how we continue to relearn the lesson that like problems out in the world are never just engineering problems. That all of a sudden, when you have a shiny technology, things like gender and race and inequality and power just go away
0: yeah you're you're absolutely right and i think that again reflects you know the biases and and the blind spots of the people that are creating this technology because they usually aren't people with diverse lived experiences it's typically you know rich white men or or white men that are on their way to being rich or hope that they're on their way to being rich with these technologies that they're creating. So yeah, it's, it's, it is mind-blowing. <laughs> but it's also the story of Silicon Valley, I guess.
1: Well, so there's another point to pick on Blenia for just another minute. There's another point in the interview where he contrasts the supposed sort of good intentions of WorldCoin with the nefarious profit-seeking surveillance of big tech. After completing this investigation, how do you think about this juxtaposition?
0: That was a fascinating what the fuck moment. And I'm basically still like, what the fuck? Uh, I mean, sure, their business model is not based on constant surveillance, but they're breaking their test users into their body parts and they're scanning them so that they can build an algorithm. Like that is is not any different from big tech. I, I will say that... It also felt to me like this interesting moment that we're in, where big tech is seen as the bad guys by everyone, including people that are trying to build the next big tech. And that to me is also fascinating, also what the fuck.
1: It felt indicative of sort of the narrative fight that's going on right now between Web 3 and Web 2 and how Web 2 has become a very convenient
0: Scapegoat.
1: Yeah, convenient scapegoat building a new set of technologies that are problematic in different ways. And similar ways.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I would argue that um it's it's really similar, the ways in which they're they're both problematic. There um yes, there are differences in the technology itself. Um maybe there are different goals, but I think in reality, the same issues of of consent of privacy of exploitation all of those exist uh despite what web3 proponents like to say they're also all centralized services you know like worldcoin is trying to become the platform for future web3 token drops it's trying to become the centralized platform for identity authentication it's just they're not there yet so maybe that's why they think that they're decentralized but if they succeed, you know that's not where we're heading.
1: well, so then, what are the questions we need to be asking now? What are the safeguards we need to be putting in place? You saw this up close in, in personal. What should we be doing?
0: I think the biggest question is just because we can build it does does that mean that we should? Um, and And a second very related question is really always asking for whom is a product being built? and at what cost. And and I think these days that at what cost is really like based on whose data. Whose data are we inputting into these systems? Whose privacy are we sacrificing essentially for the good of this eventual end user? And I think one of the things that feels really frustrating to me about this is that a lot of people are asking these questions and have been asking these questions. and the bubble that we talked about the the people in the bubble that are actually creating these systems really don't seem to be listening. Um, that said, I do think that data protection laws matter um so there's certainly questions that you know regulators and lawmakers should be asking. Um, both in the United States and Europe, where it's a lot of these technologies, the the, the strategies at least are, are being put together, where the companies are based, but also in in countries where a lot of the testing is, is happening. And, and so I think for me, that was one of the other big lessons of this reporting, that it does matter what laws are in place.
1: You wrote about WorldCoin as a kind of crypto-colonialism. Talk a bit about this idea of crypto-colonialism and how WorldCoin illustrates it?
0: Crypto-colonialism is really an expansion of the idea of techno-colonialism, um, or just really, I don't know, uh, <laughs> how the modern economy works. Uh, <laughs> right? Right. It's, it's uh, essentially about companies, primarily in the first world, in the U.S. and Europe, that are going and piloting projects uh in the developing world uh that they may not be able to do um back in in you know their home countries so it's it's again this idea of extraction um
1: and they may not be able to do it because that would never fly
0: yeah because either uh data protection laws or you know consumer protection laws uh are 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 more strongly worded they're more strongly enforced or just the public outcry that that would um, ensue would mean that these don't happen. Um, so colonialism in this context is essentially extracting the raw product, which in this case is data, and turning it into something much more valuable in the first world. Crypto-colonialism is essentially this, except it's even worse because it's harder to push back on. Blockchain is essentially just so much hard to, to hold uh, accountable.
1: All right. I've been ending the pod on the same question. If you could give one piece of advice to your teenage self, what would it be and why?
0: I wish that I had started with journalism earlier. Um, mm. I had a whole you know, other mini career before I turned to journalism and I really enjoy what it is that I do. And I, yeah, I wish that I'd started earlier.
1: And then where can folks find you online?
0: I am at Eileen Guo on Twitter. Uh, And my work can be found on MIT Technology Review, which is technologyreview.com.
1: Aileen Gua, thanks so much for coming on Untangled.
0: Thank you so much for having me.